This is LeMay's Inferno on Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. July, 1945. The citizens of a Japanese city are making their morning commute when three B-29s fly low overhead a few thousand feet above them. No flak, no alarms, no commotion. By now, this is a common occurrence. The Japanese military does not react to these small flights of planes as they do not carry bombs. However, the citizens look on in horror as these B-29s open up their bomb bays. Thousands run for cover as the aircraft drop their payload. The horrified citizens wait in agony for the inevitable explosions. Seconds pass, soon a minute, no explosions. The Japanese civilians get out from behind cover and emerge into the streets once more. As they do, they see raining down from the sky thousands of small leaflets. They pick them up and see on their front a picture of a B-29 dropping incendiary bombs on Yokohama inscribed with the words, Civilians, evacuate at once. As they turn it to the other side, they see another message. These leaflets are being dropped to notify you that your city has been listed for destruction by our powerful air force. The bombing will begin within 72 hours. This advance notice will give your military authorities ample time to take necessary defensive measures to protect you from our inevitable attack. Watch and see how powerless they are to protect you. Systematic destruction of city after city will continue as long as you blindly follow your military leaders whose blunders have placed you on the very brink of oblivion. It is your responsibility to overthrow the military government now and save what is left of your beautiful country. In the meanwhile, we urge all civilians to evacuate at once. Welcome to Episode 5 of LeMay's Inferno, here on Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. This is a seven-part documentary series covering the last year of World War II in the Pacific Theater. Previously, Curtis LeMay and the 21st Bomber Command began firebombing Japanese cities. Army and Marine Corps troops landed on and captured Okinawa, with the heaviest casualties yet taken in the Pacific War, and the Navy suffered attack after attack from Japanese kamikazes. This time, we cover the continued bombing campaign on Japan, the submarine blockade of the Empire, and the planning of the coming invasion of the home islands, Operation Downfall. I'll tell you what war is about. You've got to kill people, and when you've killed enough, they stop fighting. We're at war with Japan. We were attacked by Japan. Do you want to kill Japanese, or would you rather have Americans killed? There are no innocent civilians. It is their government, and you are fighting a people. You are not trying to fight an armed force anymore. So it doesn't bother me so much to be killing the so-called innocent bystanders. Every soldier thinks something of the moral aspect of what he is doing. But all war is immoral, and if you let that bother you, you're not a good soldier. These are all quotes from Curtis LeMay. In total war, there are no bystanders. Directly or indirectly, every citizen of a nation helps to win a war. The Second World War was the first conflict in human history in which civilian deaths outnumbered military deaths, largely because of the widespread belief in this doctrine of total war. In total, over 80 million people died during the Second World War. Of them, over 50 million were non-combatants. By April of 1945, over 70 million people had died, but there were still millions left to go before the deadliest conflict in human history would come to an end. March 24, 1945. 102 B-29s of the 313th Bombardment Wing, based on Tinian, fly toward Japan. Their bellies are not full of bombs, however. They are full of mines. They are the first attack wave of Operation Starvation, 
an operation designed to sink much of Japan's remaining merchant shipping capacity. The B-29's target is the Shimonoseki Strait, lying between the islands of Honshu and Kyushu, the busiest waterway in Japan. It is the lifeline of the Japanese Empire, as all ships sailing from China or Korea to Japan must pass through it in order to reach Japanese ports on the eastern coast of Japan. By mining the strait, LeMay and 21st Bomber Command hope to cut off this vital lifeline, and in the process sink even more of Japan's severely overstretched merchant marine. 94 of the 102 B-29s make it to the strait and drop their mines at low altitude, all the while dodging a hail of Japanese anti-aircraft fire from the cities of Shimonoseki and Kitakyushu, which sit aside the strait. When the 313th wing arrives back on Tinian, they count only three aircraft lost. Operation Starvation is only one small part of what Curtis LeMay and 21 Bomber Command call the Empire Plan. The Empire Plan is LeMay's solution to the question of how to end World War II. It combines both precision and area bombing. From here on out, 21st Bomber Command will be flying missions almost every day. Most days will involve smaller missions flown against a myriad of strategic targets in Japan, each wing assigned to a different set of targets. Some are assigned to aerial mining duties, others to bombing factories and infrastructure such as bridges and railroads, yet more to bombing oil refineries, and the majority to bombing important military assets, especially air bases. The task of bombing air bases is an important one, as LeMay has been ordered to do this in order to reduce the amount of bases the Japanese can use to throw kamikazes at the fleet sitting off Okinawa. All these smaller missions combined serve to make a coordinated strike at all of Japan's key strategic assets, and will in time stretch the Empire's ability to defend itself to the very limit. On top of these hundreds of smaller missions, every few days the whole of 21st Bomber Command will load up with incendiary bombs and burn down another Japanese city. LeMay hopes that the combination of precision and area strikes will bring Japan to her knees and win the war before the November invasion of Japan. After the March fire blitz, LeMay had run out of incendiary bombs. So the Empire plan started off with many small sorties flown by small groups of B-29s to Japanese airfields in Kyushu, which the Japanese military was using to launch kamikaze attacks on the U.S. fleet. Throughout the last half of March and all of April, 21st Bomber Command's operations consisted entirely of these precision strikes, particularly on airfields, the only exception being an April 15th raid by over 300 B-29s firebombing the Tokyo-Kawasaki area leveling a total of eight square miles of the two cities. Most of these airfield strikes, executed by groups of between 15 to 30 B-29s, did little to stop the kamikaze strikes, which the Navy had come to call the Typhoon of Steel. LeMay pointed out to the theater commanders that his strikes were doing little to stop the kamikazes, but his superiors insisted he continue to order these missions, if for no other reason than to boost Navy morale. LeMay, as ordered, would continue these strikes, but by the end of April, missions were reduced in size from around 20 aircraft to average around 12, and the main focus, until more incendiary bombs arrived, was moved from the airfield strikes to mining operations and factory destruction. LeMay continued to keep up the pressure on the Japanese, launching dozens of small-scale raids each day, on top of a number of larger raids, all entering Japanese airspace at the same time, splitting up Japan's meager air defense assets. In late March, the first P-51 fighters arrived on Iwo Jima. Being only 700 miles from Japan, P-51s based on Iwo Jima equipped with underwing drop tanks for fuel could escort the B-29s all the way to Japan, fight the Japanese fighters off, strafe ground targets, and then escort the B-29s all the way back to Iwo. As B-29s continued to bomb Japan, the P-51s would help to further destroy Japan's air defenses, as well as severely damaging her infrastructure with strafing and rocket attacks on power plants, railroads, bridges, power lines, dockyards, and small vessels out at sea. B-29 raids continued from April into May, as LeMay impatiently waited for the Navy to deliver him more incendiaries, until, in mid-May, he finally got them. The fire blitz was about to resume with a fury, as in the two months since the firebombing of Tokyo, LeMay's command had grown in size from around 350 B-29s in March to over 600. He had over twice the striking power of his March raids, and his command would only continue to grow. May 14, 1945. From their bases in the Marianas, 500 B-29s fly 
engines screaming toward Japan. The target today is Nagoya, specifically the Mitsubishi ball-bearing plant. Many of the crews are angrier than normal today, as just a couple of days prior a controversial order came from Washington. No more nude women on the side of the airplanes. They were ordered to clothe them or remove them entirely. The anatomically impossible women adorning their planes have become many crews' pride and joy, and to see their sweethearts being removed upset the crews greatly. As the B-29s arrived over Nagoya, they were met by a wave of Japanese fighters. A fierce air battle raged over the city between the gunners of the B-29s and the Japanese fighter pilots, with both sides suffering losses. After an agonizing ten minutes of harassment, the B-29s finally reached their target on the northern side of the city, and loosed over six million pounds of incendiary bombs in the factory and surrounding neighborhoods. The factory was gutted, and the neighborhoods destroyed, leveling another 3.15 square miles of the already devastated city. On May 16th, the B-29s returned, this time targeting an engine plant in downtown Nagoya by the Dockyard District. Another 8 million pounds of incendiaries destroyed the factory, the surrounding neighborhoods, and port facilities, as well as hundreds of adjacent warehouses, leveling another 3.82 square miles of the city. Between the two raids, 13 B-29s were lost, for the most part during the first raid. After these two missions, LeMay removed Nagoya from the target list, as all the major factories, most of the port, and many of the smaller plants, and 40% of the total urban area of the city had been leveled. LeMay then decided to return to Tokyo. While the mission was being planned, LeMay had a confrontation with one of his officers over the route the bombers should take. As historian Wilbur H. Morrison describes it, With another attack on Tokyo coming up, Jack Catton, one of LeMay's mission planners, studied the flak charts and decided to bring the B-29s in on another axis of attack to avoid a heavy flak installation. Wing commanders had complained they were losing their most experienced lead crews to flak batteries. LeMay always joined the planning staff after lunch the day before a mission. The general listened to the briefing officers without comment until they completed their presentation. He looked quizzically at Catton. Who planned this mission? We planned it, sir. Why did you select this axis of attack? It's a good IP and will give a good radar return. More importantly, this axis will avoid heavy concentrations of flak batteries. Let me ask just one question. Is that the best axis of attack? Yes, sir, I think so. No, I don't think you do. I mean from the standpoint of bombs on target, which is the best axis of attack? Well, actually, the other one is. It's a better IP, a better look at the target. Target acquisition would be simpler, but we do have extremely heavy defenses because we've been over this route four or five times and And we... let me explain something to you. We will lose fewer crews and we'll destroy the target far sooner if we use the best possible axis of attack from the standpoint of getting bombs on target. Catton and the others acted accordingly. LeMay had learned in Europe that it was best to destroy the target with medium to heavy losses in one mission rather than damage it four or five separate times with low casualties each time. It was a brutally simple equation. On the night of May 23rd, 525 B-29s once again brought fire to Tokyo. The target area was the area immediately south of the Imperial Palace in the Financial District. Unlike the March raids, however, Japanese air defenses had been greatly strengthened and new tactics developed. As the B-29s flew overhead, searchlights illuminated the planes as the sky became the scene of one of the world's deadliest fireworks displays, with hundreds of flak bursts every second dotting the sky with flashes of light. The Japanese also employed a new weapon over Tokyo that night. Dubbed the Baka Bomb by the Americans, Baka meaning idiot in Japanese, they were rocket-propelled suicide planes built for kamikaze strikes against U.S. ships and were now being used to ram B-29s. The combination of flak, new night fighters, and Baka bombs resulted in the loss of 17 B-29s. In exchange, the remaining 508 dropped another 7 million pounds of incendiaries on the city. Once again, Tokyo was awash with flame, as after the first wave began the blaze, the following waves dumped in more incendiaries, as well as literally pouring gasoline on the flames, dropping gasoline canisters onto the fires below. Thousands more civilians suffered a similar fate to the over 100,000 who had perished in March, though this time only 5.3 square miles were leveled compared to the 16.4 square miles leveled in March. The pilots returning to Guam, many barely in their 20s, handed their reports to Army Air Force intelligence officers with their hands shaking in shock at what they had seen. The very next night, the B-29s were out over Tokyo once again, this time with only 464 aircraft. Due to adverse weather conditions, the planes were forced to drop using their radar targeting sites, targeting once again the financial district south of the Imperial Palace. The crews by this point had been accustomed to having radar bombing achieve only marginal success when compared to visual bombing, 
but the results of this raid surpassed even their wildest bets of what would happen. They beat their March 10th score of 16.4 square miles leveled by nearly another half mile, with a total of 16.8 square miles being burned. However, the success came at a cost. The Japanese came prepared and inflicted a heavy toll on the formation. 26 B-29s were lost. It was the highest single-day loss of aircraft of the entire firebombing campaign. With the added destruction, 51% of Tokyo had been reduced to ash. When LeMay saw the post-raid recon photos, he took Tokyo off the target list. Every major target in the city had been destroyed. Japanese civilians weren't the only ones caught amidst the flames. Historian Wilbur H. Morrison writes that Captain John H. Hetchinger, a group intelligence officer, learned following the war some of the horror of the fire raids. His cousin had been captured on Guam in December 1941 and forced to work in the salt mines. He told Hetchinger that if the B-29s had burned down any more towns, they would have killed him. He survived the destruction of three cities. Typically, he said, when B-29s started fires in the center of the city, thousands of people would rush by their prison camps. All they could think of, he said, was, my God, don't leave us here to burn. Finally, someone would open the gates and they'd run like hell to get away from the fires, but the next day they'd be rounded up and locked up in another prison camp. While Hetchinger survived his encounters with the flames, some of the other American POWs in Japan were not as lucky, killed in the inferno by their own bombers. LeMay next targeted Yokohama. Concerned by the previous raid's losses, he ordered 7 Fighter Command on Iwo Jima to escort his planes with their P-51s, as well as scheduling the raid for daytime instead of nighttime. The 101 P-51s came in handy, as when the 454 B-29s showed up over Yokohama, they were met by over 150 Japanese fighters. Thankfully, effective fire from the gunners of the B-29s and superb dogfighting from the P-51 pilots rendered the Japanese attack mostly ineffective. The B-29s dropped their payload over the city and destroyed 6.9 square miles, roughly a third of the town. On June 1st, Osaka was targeted once again. 458 B-29s escorted by P-51s from Iwo Jima targeted the port, destroying 3.1 square miles of the dockyard district, sinking six ships in the harbor, and laying hundreds of mines in the harbor channels. As it happened, though, of the 148 P-51s that were assigned to escort the formation, only 27 made it over Osaka because of a severe weather front. It was so bad that 24 P-51s were lost at sea, and the rest of the planes that did not brave the storm to reach Osaka abandoned the mission and returned to Iwo. On June 5th, 400 B-29s targeted Kobe, Japan's largest port. They were ordered to fly in daylight and bomb from an altitude of 15,000 feet. Crews protested, saying that the Japanese gunners would have them zeroed at that altitude, but LeMay persisted in his quest to achieve decisive results on the first time, so that he wouldn't have to send his crews back through the gauntlet a second time. The formation encountered flak unlike anything they had ever seen before. Bombers rocked and shook as flak exploded so close to the planes that the pilots could spot the red flashes of the explosives, even in broad daylight. Crewmen winced as crew after crew reported serious damage over the radio. Dozens of planes were forced to break off and head for Iwo Jima due to the damage they had received. The formation dispensed their bombs and legged it back to the Marianas as soon as they could, though only 75% would make it back that day. 11 of the B-29s were lost over Kobe, and another 75 made emergency landings at Iwo. Of the 400 aircraft that left that morning, 176 came back damaged, many too far gone to be repaired, and were instead picked apart for spare parts. The B-29 once again proved itself as a remarkable airplane, as one B-29 crew reported over 400 holes in the fuselage from flak, with only one crewman slightly wounded, and even with that much damage, it flew the 775 miles from Kobe to Iwo leaking fuel all the while. Even with the heavy damage toll, the mission achieved its goal. 4.3 square miles of Kobe was leveled, including many of the port facilities. This raid and its aftermath would inspire the Japanese film Grave of the Fireflies, made 43 years later. Two days later, on June 7th, 400 B-29s once again attacked Osaka, targeting the army arsenal and other factories in the eastern part of the city. Cloud cover obscured the targets, and the planes dropped by radar, resulting in only 2.21 square miles of the city being destroyed. Around the same time as these last raids occurred, General Hap Arnold, Chief of the United States Army Air Forces, and LeMay's direct superior in the Pentagon, came to visit LeMay in the Marianas. He had come not only to check on and inspire the men, but also to inquire with LeMay about how quickly he thought the war could be won. The two met in LeMay's headquarters on Guam to discuss the bombing campaign. Both men knew the stakes as LeMay took too long. Arnold was direct and to the point. I'm asking this question to everyone out here. 
When is the war going to be over? We've been too busy fighting to figure out a date, but if you'll give me 30 minutes, I'll give you an estimate. Arnold nodded. LeMay took several staff officers aside and said, Go back and find out when we're going to run out of industrial areas as targets. Although he didn't tell Arnold, LeMay was using a world almanac to identify Japan's smaller cities for attacks because it was more reliable than the target list he got from Washington. After a while, one of his officers walked in and handed LeMay a note. He turned to Arnold. We'll run out of big strategic cities and targets by October 1st. I can't see the war going on much beyond that date. For LeMay and 21st Bomber Command, the job was now to cross off as many names from that world almanac as they could in as little time as possible, in the hopes that Japan would surrender before the invasion in November. October was cutting it close, though, and LeMay knew it. It was time to step things up even further. As May turned into June, and then into July, LeMay's strength in the Marianas had further grown from 600 aircraft to over 1,000, and the growth was set to continue as more and more B-29s rolled off the assembly lines back in the United States. By mid-July, firebombing missions regularly numbered over 1,000 B-29s strong, with the off days seeing the same numbers airborne, but dispersed across dozens of smaller targets. LeMay had so many B-29s under his command that he could assign entire bomb wings to a single task, such as aerial mining or bombing oil refineries and fuel dumps, as he did not need them on the firebombing missions. Experience had proved to LeMay that having 500 bombers on a firebombing raid was as good as having a thousand, as by now the only towns still not crossed off on his world almanac were so small that the 7 million extra pounds of canned fire added by having 1,000 bombers as opposed to 500 bomber strikes was well beyond overkill. One such small town, the town of Toyama, was almost completely leveled, 99.5% of its buildings destroyed, by a strike of only 100 B-29s. Thousand bomber raids only occurred when a major city found its way onto the target list, and with Tokyo, Nagoya, Osaka, Kobe, and Kirikyushu all having been ravaged by earlier firebombing raids, this almost never was the case. While LeMay exerted maximum pressure on Japan from the air, another force, not as often discussed, was striking at the Japanese from beneath the waves. When the Japanese struck the American naval base at Pearl Harbor in 1941, they left two facilities unharmed, the submarine base and the fuel storage tanks. While Mitsuo Fuchida, the leader of the Pearl Harbor strike, did not know it at the time, he had made a major blunder, as American submarines would sink more ships than all of their surface counterparts combined, becoming the deadliest naval force in the world. While the German U-boats in the Atlantic may be more famous, the American submarines in the Pacific strangled Japan's economy nearly to death, a feat the German submarines could never manage on the Americans and British in the Atlantic. At the outset of World War II, Japan had the world's largest merchant navy, boasting more tonnage than the U.S. and Britain. Being an island nation, Japan was reliant on trade for much of her economic life. In fact, it was the U.S. embargo placed on Japan after their aggressive expansion in Asia that pushed Japanese leaders into declaring war on the United States. The objective of the early campaigns in the Pacific War were to rapidly secure the resource-rich islands of the Dutch East Indies so that Japan could sustain her war-related production using the raw materials harvested in these lands, not having to rely on American trade. After these islands had been secured, the Japanese established a large network of trade routes with the purpose of funneling these resources into Japan so that the Japanese could continue to make war across the Pacific. So then, the task of the U.S. submarine force was clear. Make Japanese sailors fear the sea and cut off these crucial avenues of supply. While the submarine force suffered a major setback with the loss of their bases in the Philippines, submarines operating out of new bases in Western Australia and out of Hawaii began to exert pressure on the Japanese shipping lanes as early as January 1942. American submarines and their crews made daring attack runs at heavily defended Japanese convoys, getting into perfect firing solutions, letting loose with their salvos of six torpedoes fired from their forward tubes, waiting for the explosions, and then... Nothing. Subcommanders were puzzled. They soon found out why. Faulty torpedoes. The first problem was a rather simple one to fix. The torpedoes were running 10 feet too deep, so the captains simply programmed their torpedoes to run 10 feet shallower than they needed them to. So the captains tried this, and then another problem came up. The American torpedoes used a magnetic detonator. The torpedoes would run underneath a target vessel, detect its magnetic field, and then explode directly underneath shattering the ship's keel. In testing at naval base Newport, Rhode Island, they worked great. Why not now? As it turned out, the magnetic field around Newport, Rhode Island, and that around the area of the South Pacific Ocean, was quite different. 
and while the torpedoes worked in Rhode Island, they did not work in the different environment. While the Ordnance Department worked on a fix to this problem, the captain switched to using contact detonators on the torpedoes. But then, yet another problem revealed itself. As American subcaptains began to use the contact detonator, they listened on sonar as their torpedoes struck the hull of the enemy ships, made a loud clang of bashing metal, and then didn't explode. The captains were furious. Why were the torpedoes still not working? As it turned out, the firing pin, the piece of metal which is pressed inward upon contact setting off the explosive charge, was not strong enough to withstand the pressure of impacting a ship and would bend and warp instead of being pushed back into the explosive charge as intended. Technicians looked around for stronger metals, but nothing America had at the time could match the demand, until they found a pile of propellers from downed Japanese aircraft. They fashioned a new firing pin from these propellers, and to their astonishment and delight, they worked perfectly. Fortunately, there were enough Japanese propellers around to allow all the torpedoes to be retrofitted with the new firing pins. Finally, in 1943, using captured Japanese metal, the reliability problem of American torpedoes had been fixed. While the submarine force had not been idle for the almost year and a half that their torpedoes often did not explode, they did have a lot of catching up to do if they wanted to achieve their goal of strangling Japan's economy. With their fixed and improved torpedoes, the American Gato, Baleo, and Tench-class fleet submarines went to work, patrolling Japanese sea lanes in the South China Sea, the Philippine Sea, and even Japanese home waters. Some of the most daring exploits of the American submarines occurred within view of Japan, as the subs infiltrated the inland sea of Japan, sinking ships as they exited Japanese harbors or as they sailed through the narrow straits in between islands. The Bungo Strait, between Kyushu and Shikoku, became a particularly fruitful hunting ground for many boats, where they sank many Japanese transports and tankers. In 1942, even with the faulty torpedoes, American subs had sunk over a million gross tons of Japanese shipping, out of a total of just under 7 million tons. New Japanese ship production almost entirely made up for these losses, however. In 1943, though, with fixed torpedoes, American subs doubled their total, sinking over 2 million gross tons, a loss the Japanese could not hope to replace. From 1943 on, Japan's merchant fleet would continue to shrink as American submarines found bountiful hunting grounds in the waters of the Western Pacific. It was in 1944, with upgraded torpedoes and many new submarines being deployed, that the real killing started. American submarines, now using closer bases in the Marianas, were able to hunt the vital supply routes to the South China Sea and Yellow Sea, sinking hundreds of Japanese merchant ships. Over the course of 1944, American subs sank over 4 million gross tons of Japanese shipping, doubling their 1943 total. With their torpedoes having improved speed, improved firing pins, and functioning magnetic detonators, along with a myriad of upgrades to the ships themselves, such as advanced radar and sonar capabilities, the U.S. subs became the undisputed masters of Japanese home waters. Often, American submarines would sneak through Japanese anti-submarine defenses and infiltrate Japanese harbors, a few times even operating in Tokyo Bay itself. By the end of 1944, the Japanese merchant fleet had shrunk in size from 7 million gross tons in 1941 to under 2 million gross tons. As 1945 began, American submarines found the seas increasingly empty as most of their targets had been sunk and could not be replaced. As it would turn out, the Americans would only sink just over one and a half million tons of shipping in 1945, barely more than their 1942 total. Practically the remainder, though, of Japan's merchant fleet. The result of this submarine campaign was that Japan was slowly being starved of the resources it needed to fight the war. By 1945, Japanese authorities were struggling to bring in enough food to maintain their stockpiles. While they had stored up over a year's worth of food just in case, by mid-1945, they were forced to begin draining this stockpile to feed their people. If the war were to continue into 1946, not only would Japan not be able to import any raw materials with which to build ships, planes, and guns, but her people would also begin to starve for lack of food. The exploits of some of these American submarines are legendary, but one stands out above all the others. The USS Tang, hull number 306, commanded by Richard O'Kane. Tang went on five war patrols in her just over a year of service between October 1943 and October 1944. In these five patrols, she sank 33 ships, the most of any American submarine in World War II. On her third patrol, she set the single patrol sinking record for American submarines, sinking 10 ships. While all of Tang's patrols were eventful, it would be her fifth and last patrol which would make Tang and her commander famous, 
resulting in Commander O'Kane receiving the Medal of Honor. It was October of 1944, and USS Tang was on her way to patrol the South China Sea, sailing in the constricted waters of the Taiwan Strait between the island of Formosa and the Chinese mainland, both occupied by the Japanese. This strait, and the South China Sea as a whole, were the main Japanese shipping route from the East Indies to Japan, and most of her shipping passes through these waters. They were a rich hunting ground. As Tang was transiting the strait on October 24, 1944, O'Kane and the crew spotted a large convoy, and Commander O'Kane ordered Tang to begin a nighttime surface attack. We turn now to the official post-action report written by O'Kane himself for the story. The convoy was tracked on courses following the ragged coast at 12 knots. The Japanese became suspicious during our initial approach, two escorts commencing to run on opposite course to the long column, firing bursts of 40mm and 5-inch salvos. As we continued to close the leading ships, the escort commander obligingly illuminated the column with 36-inch or 40-inch searchlights, using this to signal with. It gave us a perfect view of our first selected target, a three-deck, two-stack transport, of the second target, a three-deck, one-stacker, and of the third, a large modern tanker. With ranges from 1,400 yards on the first transport to 900 yards on the tanker, we fired two Mark 18 torpedoes, each in slow, deliberate salvos to pass under the middle and stack of the tanker. In spite of the apparent early warning and the sporadic shooting which was apparently designed to scare the submarine, no evasive tactics were employed by any of the ships. The torpedoes commenced hitting as we paralleled the convoy in search of our next two targets. Our love for the Mark 18 Mod 1 torpedoes after the disappointing cruiser experience was again restored as all torpedoes hit nicely. We passed the next ship, a medium freighter abeam at 600 yards, and then turned for a stern shot at another tanker and transport astern of her. We fired a single stern torpedo under the tanker's stack and one at the foremast, and one at the mainmast of the transport. The ranges were between 600 and 700 yards. Things were anything but calm and peaceful now, for the escorts had stopped their warning tactics and were directing good salvos at us and the blotches of smoke we left behind on going to full power to clear the melee. Just after firing at the transport, a full-fledged destroyer charged behind her stern and headed our way, and exactly what took place in the following seconds will never be determined, but the tanker was hit nicely and blew up, apparently a gasoline-loaded job. At least one torpedo was observed to hit the transport, and an instant later, the destroyer blew up, either intercepting our third torpedo, or possibly the 40mm fire from the two destroyer escorts bearing down on our beam. In any case, the result was the same and only the transport remained afloat, and she apparently stopped. We were as yet untouched, all gunfire either having cleared our heads or being directed at the several blurps of smoke we emitted when pleading for more speed. When we were 10,000 yards from the transport, we were all in the clear, so we stopped to look over the situation and recheck our last torpedoes, which had been loaded forward during our stern tube attack. A half hour was spent with each torpedo, withdrawing it from the tube, ventilating the battery, and checking the rudders and gyros. With everything in readiness, we started cautiously back in to get our cripple. The two destroyer escorts were patrolling on his seaward side, so we made a wide sweep and came in very slow so as not to be detected, even by sound. She was lower in the water, but not definitely sinking. Checking our speed by pit log at six knots, we fired our 23rd torpedo from 900 yards, aimed just forward of her mainmast. We observed the phosphorescent wake heading as aimed at our crippled target and fired our 24th and last torpedo at his foremast. We rang up emergency speed as this last torpedo broached and curved sharply to the left. We completed part of a fishtail maneuver in a futile attempt to clear the turning circle of this erratic circular run. The torpedo was observed through about 180 degrees of its turn due to the phosphorescence of its wake. It struck abreast after the torpedo room with a violent explosion about 20 seconds after firing. The tops were blown off of the only regular ballast tanks aft, and the after three compartments flooded instantly. The tank sank by the stern as much as you would drop a pendulum suspended in a horizontal position. There was insufficient time to even carry out the last order to close the hatch. When the faulty torpedo struck Tang, Commander O'Kane and the rest of the men on the bridge were blown overboard and clear of the ship, falling into the sea. As Tang rapidly sank, one man managed to escape through the open hatch and jump overboard. The rest of the men either drowned or ran into the forward torpedo room and shut the watertight door. The survivors rowed Tang down to the bottom, 180 feet underwater. Fire started in the ship, and soon the torpedo room became superheated. Thirteen of the thirty men inside entered into the small compartment between the inner and outer doors of the escape hatch. 
they donned Manson lungs, an early version of modern rebreathers, and opened the escape hatch. They swam up to the surface and joined O'Kane and the bridge crew in the water. The surviving crew swam about in the sea until the next morning, when Japanese ships came by and picked up some of the men in the water. Nine men, including O'Kane, were picked up by a Japanese corvette. The rest, both in the water and aboard the ship, 78 men in all, perished. O'Kane and the survivors were taken prisoner aboard the corvette, and were beaten by a number of Japanese sailors on board. O'Kane and the others initially thought of it as just another war crime, but upon seeing their torturers burned and soaked bodies, they realized they were the survivors of the ships they had sunk the night before. Commander O'Kane remarked, When we realized that our clubbing and kickings were being administered by the burned, mutilated survivors of our handiwork, we found we could take it with less prejudice. O'Kane and the eight other survivors were transported back to Japan, and spent the remainder of the war in brutal captivity in Ofuna Prison Camp outside Yokohama, where they were tortured and interrogated by Japanese intelligence officers on American submarine tactics. O'Kane received the Medal of Honor after the war for both his courageous exploits and for his resilience in captivity. For all their successes in the war, the U.S. submarine force paid a heavy price. Of the over 300 American submarines that served in World War II, 52 of them, Tang among them, were lost, taking 375 officers and 3,131 enlisted men down with them. The silent service, as it became known, was both the most successful and hardest hit of any branch in Navy service, and their continued excellence into the modern day is a testament to the stunning grit, determination, and ingenuity of their World War II forebears, like Commander Richard O'Kane. While submarines strangled Japan at sea, and LeMay and his superforts pounded Japan from the sky, Army and Marine Corps forces under the command of General Douglas MacArthur were preparing to join in the fight and bring the fighting to Japan itself. The code name for the operation was Downfall, and it would be the largest seaborne invasion in human history. It was so large in scale that President Truman considered promoting MacArthur from five stars to six stars, which would have made him the first and only general of the armies in American history. Operation Downfall would occur in two parts. The first, Operation Olympic, would target southern Kyushu in the area around Kagoshima Bay, and would take place on X Day, November 1, 1945. The second, Operation Coronet, would target the Kanto Plain, otherwise known as the Tokyo Metropolitan Area, and would involve two simultaneous landings on opposite sides of Tokyo Bay, forming two pincers which would drive on to Tokyo. For Operation Olympic, the Americans planned to use 13 divisions. For Coronet, upwards of 40 divisions. The total Allied invasion force would number over 6 million men strong. With nine divisions going in on X-Day, Operation Olympic would hold the record for the largest amphibious assault in world history for all of six months, until on Y-Day, March 1, 1946, Operation Coronet would involve between 20 and 30 divisions in Day 1 landings alone. By comparison, only six divisions went to shore on D-Day, and seven on Day 1 of Okinawa. The invasion fleet would be the largest ever assembled, totaling 42 aircraft carriers, 24 battleships, and 400 destroyers and destroyer escorts along with thousands of support ships and transports carrying the invasion force. By comparison, the current U.S. Navy, the most powerful navy in the world, has only 490 ships. The U.S. planners for the invasion made a list of assumptions about the Japanese defenses in their planning, and among these were, one, that operations in this area will be opposed not only by the available organized military forces of the empire, but also by a fanatically hostile population. Two, that approximately three hostile divisions will be disposed in southern Kyushu and an additional three in northern Kyushu at the initiation of the Olympic operation. Three, that total hostile forces committed against Kyushu operations will not exceed eight to ten divisions and that this level will be speedily attained. Four, that approximately 21 hostile divisions, including depot divisions, will be on Honshu at the initiation of Coronet and that 14 of these divisions may be employed in the Kanto Plain area. And five, that the enemy may withdraw his land-based air forces to the Asiatic mainland for protection from our neutralizing attacks. That under such circumstances, he can possibly amass from 2,000 to 2,500 planes in that area by exercise of rigid economy, and that this force can operate against Kyushu landings by staging through homeland fields. As it would turn out, all of their assumptions bar the first, that the Japanese population would be hostile to the invaders, were incorrect. 
the Japanese had deployed over 4 million soldiers in the home islands, with around a million of them in 14 divisions based on Kyushu, the target of Operation Olympic. This meant that not only did the U.S. not have their assumed numerical superiority, they were in fact outnumbered by the Japanese defenders, more than two to one. While the Japanese units in the home islands varied in degrees of readiness and supply, the units in Kyushu and in the Kanto Plain area had been given supply priority, and thus, the units the Americans would fight most would be the best equipped and supplied. On top of their military personnel, the Japanese started a propaganda campaign in the summer of 1945 called the Glorious Death of 100 Million Campaign. Its goal was to rally every last Japanese citizen to give their life for the emperor. To this end, they conscripted every able-bodied man between the ages of 16 and 60, and every woman between the ages of 17 and 40, and equipped them with rudimentary weapons, ranging in quality from antique firearms to trowels, and gave them rudimentary military training. While it was unlikely that every Japanese civilian would fight to the death, it is likely that up to a third of them, somewhere over 30 million people, would be killed in the invasion. On top of the civilian casualties, American planners assumed based on past experience that all of the military personnel in the home islands would perish in the invasion, over four million of them. On top of the bad intelligence on Japanese manpower, American planners also underestimated the number of Japanese kamikazes, both aircraft and boats, that the Japanese military had stockpiled. American planners estimated that no more than 5,000 aircraft were being kept in storage in preparation for the invasion. The actual number was over 12,500. On top of these, thousands more motor attack boats, midget submarines, and Kai-10 manned torpedoes had been built and were ready to be deployed. While at Okinawa, kamikaze pilots had to fly over hundreds of miles of open ocean before reaching their targets, allowing U.S. planes and ships plenty of time to react and prepare a defense, the pilots coming from Kyushu could take cover from radar by flying low to the ground, appearing suddenly at the coast and flying the final few miles to their targets, catching the American ships with little time to prepare. What's more, the kamikazes were ordered to target the transport ships, rather than the combat ships, in the hopes of weakening the invasion forces. A kamikaze strike on a transport, filled to the brim with soldiers, would result in many more casualties than a hit on a warship, meaning that not only would it be easier for the kamikazes to hit their targets, but also when they did, they would kill many more Americans. Fleet Admiral Chester Nimitz feared that the invasion of Kyushu alone would result in the loss of over 5,000 sailors, making it even deadlier than Okinawa. With the inaccurate intelligence Nimitz was using, it is likely this figure would have been much higher. In addition to being the largest American invasion of the war, it would also be the first time British Commonwealth forces would see major action in the island-hopping campaign. A Commonwealth Corps of around 12 divisions hailing from Britain, Australia, New Zealand, and Canada would land in support of Operation Coronet. On top of this, the British agreed to send a force of bombers to support the U.S. 20th and 8th Air Forces called the Tiger Force. The brainchild of Winston Churchill, the Tiger Force was originally planned to consist of over a thousand Avro Lancaster bombers. But by August of 1945, this commitment had been reduced to around 200 bombers. These remaining squadrons would perform specialty tasks, and among their ranks was number 617 Squadron, nicknamed the Dam Busters made famous for their daring 1943 raid on the hydroelectric dams of the Roar River Valley. The British Pacific Fleet, having been reinforced after Okinawa, would also play a big role, contributing a quarter of the fleet's air power. On top of the over 30 million civilian, and over 4 million military Japanese casualties they already mentioned, Allied planners estimated that there would be a half a million American and 250,000 Commonwealth casualties. With Allied intelligence severely underestimating Japanese strength in the region, it is not unlikely that these estimates are reflective of only half, or perhaps even a third, of what the true number would be. The numbers of casualties, and the statistics of the invasion as a whole are simply staggering, and make the climactic battles of Stalingrad and Berlin in Europe, where millions died, look meager in comparison. No one among the Allied planners wanted to commence the invasion, but with Allied leaders demanding nothing less than unconditional surrender, it was either the invasion or a long and morale-draining blockade from air and sea. Or was it? In July of 1945, the leaders of the major Allied powers, Truman, Churchill, and Stalin, met in Potsdam, a suburb of Berlin. They toured the war-ravaged city, where, after the battle that had taken place there in April and May, 
barely a building was left standing. A manor had been renovated and repaired by Soviet occupation forces in anticipation of the leader's arrival, and after the three men had finished touring the ruins of the Third Reich, including the interior of the Führer bunker, where Adolf Hitler had committed suicide, they retired to the manor in Potsdam. The next day they began the Potsdam Conference, the last major meeting of the leaders of the United Nations, and while officially there were two main topics of debate, the fate of Europe post-war and how to deal with Japan, with Stalin's unspoken positions on the former, only the negotiations on how to defeat Japan were of real consequence. At the Yalta Conference back in February, Stalin had made a deal with FDR to invade Japan three months after the surrender of Germany. By now, two months had passed since Germany's May 9th surrender, and Truman, with support from Churchill, asked Stalin if he was going to keep his promise. Stalin assured the two that he would. This was in fact the opposite answer of what both Truman and Churchill wanted to hear, as it guaranteed that if Japan didn't surrender soon, China, Korea, and Japan would have to be partitioned between the Western Allies and the Soviet Union, as had Germany, an iron curtain falling across not just Europe, but most of Asia as well. Churchill and Truman worked to negotiate with Stalin what they hoped would be good borders in Asia that would both curb Soviet expansion and give Stalin what he wanted. While the negotiations on what post-war Asia would look like continued, the three leaders, along with help from a delegation from Chiang Kai-shek's nationalist China, drafted a declaration of principles upon which the surrender of Japan would be accepted. The document that was produced would come to be known as the Potsdam Declaration. We, the President of the United States, the President of the National Government of the Republic of China, and the Prime Minister of Great Britain, representing the hundreds of millions of our countrymen, have conferred and agree that Japan shall be given an opportunity to end this war. The prodigious land, sea, and air forces of the United States, the British Empire, and of China, many times reinforced by their armies and air fleets from the West, are poised to strike the final blows upon Japan. This military power is sustained and inspired by the determination of all the Allied nations to prosecute the war against Japan until she ceases to resist. The result of the futile and senseless German resistance to the might of the aroused free peoples of the world stands forth in awful clarity as an example to the people of Japan. The might that now converges on Japan is immeasurably greater than that which, when applied to the resisting Nazis, necessarily laid waste to the lands, the industry, and the method of life of the whole German people. The full application of our military power, backed by our resolve, will mean the inevitable and complete destruction of the Japanese armed forces, and just as inevitably, the utter devastation of the Japanese homeland. The time has come for Japan to decide whether she will continue to be controlled by those self-willed militaristic advisors whose unintelligent calculations have brought the Empire of Japan to the threshold of annihilation, or whether she will follow the path of reason. Following are our terms. We will not deviate from them. There are no alternatives. We shall brook no delay. There must be eliminated for all time the authority and influence of those who have deceived and misled the people of Japan into embarking upon world conquest. For we insist that a new order of peace, security, and justice will be impossible until irresponsible militarism is driven from the world. Until such a new order is established, and until there is convincing proof that Japan's war-making power is destroyed, points in Japanese territory to be designated by the Allies shall be occupied to secure the achievement of the basic objectives we are here setting forth. The terms of the Cairo Declaration shall be carried out and Japanese sovereignty shall be limited to the islands of Honshu, Hokkaido, Kyushu, Shikoku, and such minor islands as we determine. The Japanese military forces, after being completely disarmed, shall be permitted to return to their homes with the opportunity to lead peaceful and productive lives. We do not intend that the Japanese shall be enslaved as a race or destroyed as a nation, but stern justice shall be meted out to all war criminals, including those who have visited cruelties upon our prisoners. The Japanese government shall remove all obstacles to the revival and strengthening of democratic tendencies among the Japanese people, freedom of speech, of religion, and of thought, as well as respect for the fundamental human rights shall be established. Japan shall be permitted to maintain such industries as will sustain her economy and permit the exaction of just reparations in kind, but not those which would enable her to rearm for war. To this end, access to, as distinguished from control of, raw materials shall be permitted. 
eventual Japanese participation in world trade relations shall be permitted. The occupying forces of the Allies shall be withdrawn from Japan as soon as these objectives have been accomplished, and there has been established in accordance with the freely expressed will of the Japanese people a peacefully inclined and responsible government. We call upon the government of Japan to proclaim now the unconditional surrender of all Japanese armed forces and to provide proper and adequate assurances of their good faith in such action. The alternative for Japan is prompt and utter destruction. As the leaders were drafting the Potsdam Declaration, both Churchill and Truman secretly had their eyes fixed on another endeavor, one they hoped would greatly hasten Japan's surrender, preventing the Soviets from joining the war against Japan in the first place. Or at the very least, weakening Russia's claims to Asian territory at the negotiating table. Truman kept a constant lookout for updates, until one day he received a phone call. He listened to the man on the other line, asked a couple questions, as his grin became a smile, and then put down the phone and ran through the halls of the manor to the room where Churchill had made his quarters. Truman told Churchill the news, and the two men, two of the most powerful men in the world, left the room grinning and laughing like schoolboys. They made their way across the manor to where Stalin and the Soviets were staying, and, still smiling, requested to meet Stalin. Stalin soon appeared and asked what the fuss was about. Stalin had been previously in a number of meetings and was awaiting a few phone calls himself. Truman told him the news. The United States had just built and successfully tested the world's first atomic bomb. After Truman finished telling Stalin the news, Churchill and Truman looked at each other, grinning, before turning back to Stalin seeking a reaction. They got none. Stalin's face was as cold and calculated as ever. He simply grunted and walked off. Truman and Churchill were astounded and disappointed by the reaction, and wondered why Stalin was unmoved. They didn't know it, but Stalin already knew. That's all for this episode of LeMay's Inferno on Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. I've been your host, Carter McNish. Join us next time as we discuss the trinity of bombs that brought World War II and LeMay's Inferno to its deadly climax. Don't sit under the apple tree with anyone else but me. Anyone else but me. Anyone else but me. No, no, no. Don't sit under the apple tree.